Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Madison, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMadison.com. So fun to be up in Madison finally. Thanks, Father Scott. So let me ask you a question. When did you get your first wound as a child? When did you discover that you were not invincible? When did you discover that you were vulnerable? When did you discover that the best things in life are often the most fragile things? Vulnerability is a lesson that took me a long time to learn, and I'm still learning. So vulnerability, the word vulnerable comes from a Latin word which simply means to be wounded. You are a woundable human being. So I said I'm learning this lesson all over again, so I got this to show for it. I got a sermon illustration out of this. I had to use this in a sermon because this happened on November 3rd. So I was putting a lawnmower, I won't tell you any, back on. And whenever anybody hears lawnmower blade, they go, ah, I don't want to hear any more. So I won't tell you any more. But all that to say, I wound up with a severed tendon and surgery. And, but, you know, my first reaction was, oh, I have cut myself. I'll just go inside. I'll pour some hydrogen peroxide on it. I'll put a big Band-Aid on it. And then I thought, well, this is a lot worse than that. And so eight stitches later and surgery later, it's finally starting to heal. But, uh, and then uh, a year ago, so I said this is a lesson I'm learning over and over again. A year ago, I was in uh, Jos, Nigeria with Bishop Stewart, and we, when we were sitting in the airport in O'Hare, we were sharing stories about what's your worst case scenario about what might happen in Nigeria? So I said, well, my worst case scenario is a suicide bomber. He said, well, my worst case scenario is um, a kidnapping. And so we got to Nigeria, and we were having a great time there, and neither of those worst-case scenarios happened, but as you may have heard, Bishop Stewart got really sick. It started with heat stroke, and then he had uh, kidney stones, multiple kidney stones, and then he got malaria, and then on the way home, he was um, basically really struggling to stay awake, and a, a team of people met us at the airport, whisked him through security, and it took him like basically six months to recover. And during that whole time, while we were in Nigeria trying to get medical health in one of the worst places in the world to get medical help, I started facing a lot of my fears and my weaknesses, and I started like, I'm overwhelmed, I don't know what to do, and I'm getting really scared, and I didn't know who to talk to, so not only is he facing his physical vulnerability, but I'm facing my emotional and relational vulnerabilities and weaknesses, and so I'm realizing, again, that I am more vulnerable than I would often dare to admit. Psalm 62 is a psalm with a story behind it. So every passage of scripture, it it might be poetry, or it might be a letter, or it might be something, but everything has a story behind it. 
And if you read this psalm, you think, what is the story behind this? What happened to this person? The psalm of David, one of the greatest men in the Old Testament. What happened? What was going on in his life? And we don't know exactly, but he leaves some clues. But we know for sure that, that he obviously faced some things that showed him human vulnerability, his vulnerability, and vulnerability of every human being. So it's almost like a story. So Bible scholars would say that there's different kinds of psalms in the Bible. There's psalms of lament, and psalms of lament are like the sad psalms, the really where we deal with kind of our anguish and our doubt and our pain and our questions. This is probably a psalm that came out of a time of lament, and now he's on the other side of it, and he's telling the story of how he got to where he is by going through some really hard times. So his life has been shaken, he's going to tell us. He's felt like some people have tried to thrust him down. He's, and he's looked at life, and he's looked at, been an account on in this life, in life, and, and, and said, what is it that I can really count on in this life? In light of the fact that life is vulnerable, in light of the fact that some things in life, some of the most beautiful things in life are really fragile, what is it that I can really count on? How am I going to live in light of life's really deep vulnerability. He uses the word salvation. And salvation, he uses the word four times. He says, for God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. That's verse one. Verse two, he says, he alone is my rock and my salvation. Now sometimes you might hear the word salvation and that's talking about maybe delivering from sin. And, and death and, and, and spiritual death. But in this case, salvation is what is going to be my foundation? What is going to be my ultimate security in life? And he uses that word salvation four times. So in the midst of life's vulnerability, what can I really count on? What can I really base my life on? And he says in verse 1, he says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. So he makes this really dramatic, bold claim, and he says, I've gotten clear on this. I've learned what I can really count on in this life. And the word silence there doesn't mean just lack of noise, but it really means sort of an inner calm, an inner certainty, an inner assurance. Think of a, a lake. You know, Scott said I come from Minnesota, so 13,000 lakes in Minnesota. Um, and you think of a lake on a really calm day, and it's just like glass, literally like glass. You can see the reflection of the trees, and it's gorgeous because it's so calm. No motorboats disturbing it, no wind, no waves. And David is saying, that's the way my soul feels inside. I, I have this, this clarity, this peacefulness, this certainty. After going through this time where my life was shaken and, and I didn't respond so well and I felt like my life was falling apart, he said, I've gotten clear on this and so my soul is really silent inside. It's clear inside that God alone is my salvation. And then he goes on in verse 2, he alone is my rock and salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. In other words, life can shake me, but I'm not going to be greatly shaken. I'm not going to just collapse. I'm not going to fall apart. That's a pretty bold statement. Now, why is it bold? Why is that such a big claim to say, I've gotten really clear. I know what my salvation is. I know what my foundation is. 
I know what's going to prevent me from not being greatly shaken. Well, because as I've been saying, life is often more vulnerable and fragile than we dare to admit. He gives a couple examples. And look with me, and I, I, I know that you, you, I've heard from, from people that uh, attend here that, man, they really love following along in Scripture. So I think uh, Father Scott is, has, has really instilled this in you, if you didn't have it already, is to work with him as he's preaching. So I want you to work with me. I want you to sweat with me as we're, as we're working together, looking at this passage, because you'll get a lot more out of a sermon if you put your own effort into it digging into God's word with me as I'm doing this. So look at verses three and four. So he gives a couple vignettes. So when I say that life is vulnerable, what, what was David talking about? What was his story? He gives a couple examples. All a tottering fence. Will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. What's he talking about? He's talking about people that he knew. This is, this is very personal. People that he knew, that he thought he could count on, that he thought he could really trust. But not only did they not come through for him, but they turned against him. They not only disappointed him, they not only rejected him, but they undermined him and they t- attacked him. You know, since I've been at Church of the Resurrection, I've had the privilege of traveling a lot of places around the globe. And one of the things that I've seen is just how precarious millions upon millions of people in our globe live their daily lives, how vulnerable they are. And they're often vulnerable because people in power have put them in those positions and situations. So I've been in Phnom Penh, and looked into the restaurants and seen these little plastic chairs lined up with young women in those chairs waiting to sell their bodies for $5 so they can make a living. They live precarious lives. Many of them have been trafficked. Many of them have been abused. I've been in Jos, Nigeria and seen and visited actually four small villages that were destroyed, absolutely leveled by terrorist attacks. They live precarious, vulnerable lives. I've been in Papua New Guinea where my son and John Michael's brother works as a doctor and seen people who have absolutely no medical care, sometimes walk for days to get to this little hospital in the Western Highlands. They live precarious, vulnerable lives. Millions of people around the globe, that is their story. But David says, David is a man of an authority. He's a man of power. He's a man of wealth. He's a man of influence. He said, I still face the vulnerability of relationships of people who want to turn against me. So he says, these people, these are people that bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. They act nice to me. They act like they're on my side, but I, don't, I can't really trust them. And he says, do I feel invincible about that? Does that like not bother me? He says, no. He said, I feel, sometimes I feel like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. Like you could just push me a little bit more and I'm going to fall over. Again, this is a powerful man saying this. He doesn't feel invincible. He doesn't feel invulnerable. So that's the first example. People, relationships can sometimes make us feel really vulnerable. Relationships can hurt. 
Second example he gives is that life itself, just the breath in you, just the fact that you're alive, that's vulnerable. Look at verse 9 with me. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. What's he talking about? Who are people that are low of low estate? Those are people without power. Those are people without resources. Those are people that come to that jungle hospital in Papua New Guinea. Those are the people that bust your dishes when you go to a restaurant. Those are the people that cut your deli meat or give you your salad when you're at the grocery store deli. Those are the people that are often invisible, that have very little power. Those are the people that are homeless. Those are the people that have inadequate, substandard housing. And there are billions of these people in our planet, but they're often invisible to many of us. How does he describe them? He says, they're a breath. They're like, how much does that weigh? How long does that last? Not very long. What about people of high estate? Those are people that would be on Forbes magazine's list of the most powerful 100 people on the planet. Go Google that sometime. You can, the most powerful people or the most successful people or the richest people, Forbes has lists of all these things. I wasn't on any of them, but, and you probably aren't either. These are powerful people. These are tech giants. These are world leaders. These are leaders of the most powerful countries in the world. But then it's also, it's not just them. I think in many ways, it's us. We in the affluent Western world, we are on the scale of the world, we are people of high estate. And what's it say about them? What's it say about us? They are a delusion. Why are they a delusion? Well, because they think they're invulnerable, as we can think we're invulnerable. Verse 10, it says, put not trust in extortion, set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, I can be thankful. But do not set your heart on them, because even your riches are ultimately vulnerable. And so, in that end of verse 9, he says, let's put them all together. All the people of high estate, all the people of low estate, let's put them all together. Let's put them on a scale. How much are they going to weigh? Whoop! They go up, because they're lighter than a breath. How much does a breath weigh? How does a billion breaths weigh? Not very much. And they're not going to last very long. He says, in the midst of life's vulnerability. Now, this is a guy who says, I've gotten clear of what my salvation is, what my rock is going to be. I've had to get clear by going through some hard things. So, so far, I want us to see he's not preaching. He's not telling us how to live. He's just talking to himself. He's just telling his story. And it's really interesting what happens in this psalm. So verse 1, he says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. Now look at verse 5, because he's going to do something literary, in literary sense that's really interesting. He says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. He repeats it, but it's different, right? Did you catch that, how it's different? He says, For God alone, O my soul, he speaks to himself, Wait in silence. Who's he talking to? 
I'm talking to my soul. I'm talking to myself. I'm talking to the deepest part of me. And he's saying, hey, self, don't forget that God alone is your salvation, that he's ultimately your rock. Why does he say that? Because we forget, because we get deluded, because we're open, to, we're not only vulnerable to pain and suffering, but we're vulnerable to deceive ourselves. So he says, I'm talking to you, soul. Don't forget that the Lord is your salvation. And then verse 8, he, he intensifies it again. So it's almost like he's given us a little bit about how, well, I started here, but then I grew a, even a little deeper in the Lord, and then I grew even a little deeper in the Lord. There's movement to this psalm, like there's movement to his spiritual journey. So in verse 8, he says, trust in him at all times, O people. Who's he talking to now? He's talking to us. So now he is preaching. So verse 1, he's just kind of stating it. Verse 5, he preaches to himself. Verse 8, he turns out to us, and he says, okay, now I'm going to tell all of you. I want all of you to know this. I want all of you to have what I found in the Lord. He says, trust in him at all times, O people. When? At all times. And what does trust look like? I love this little picture in the next line. When you trust the Lord, when you trust somebody, what do you do? You pour out your heart before him. So when you really trust somebody, you can, you can open up. You can share what's really on your heart. You can share who you really are. You can share the good and the bad, and you can just kind of lay it out there. And when you get that sense of trust, whether it's a friendship or soul, and literally the, the image in there in the, literal, in the original language is like a, a vase or a cup that you turn and you pour out every drop of the liquid. It's just there's nothing left. It's like I have nothing left to share because I've shared everything in my heart that was on my heart. And the psalmist says that David is saying, I've learned to do that in the Lord. That's the kind of intimacy I have with the Lord. And, and I love that picture. He says, God is a refuge for us. Now, I don't know about you, but that's basically how I start every day. Every day I wake up, get my cup of coffee, go to my little study in my, in my home, turn up the heat a little bit, light a couple candles. First thing I do for just 10 minutes is just say, Lord, here's me. Here's my life. Here's my fears. Here's what I was afraid of yesterday. Here's a conversation I had yesterday. I didn't handle that very well yesterday. Oh man, that, that person said that and I'm, uh, that just, I felt kind of rejected, Lord. Or, or uh, Lord, I just, I, I struggled with this sin yesterday. Or Lord, I'm just not sure about this today. And so I just literally pour out my heart for him for the first 10 or 15 minutes. And that's what the psalmist learned. In the midst of life's fragility, and vulnerability, ultimately, ultimately, I'm not trusting in myself. I'm not trusting in my capabilities. Ultimately, I mean, partially we can do that up to a point. But he's saying, I've learned that the Lord is my refuge. Now, why can he do that? Now, look at verse 11. He says, once, he comes to the end of the psalm. He says, once God has spoken, twice I have heard this. 
In other words, he's not just saying, I've just heard this twice. He's saying, that's sort of a Hebrew way of saying, man, I've just heard this over and over again. I've had to learn this the hard way. But I think I and that got it now is what he's saying. And he says, that power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. So you want power? You want power and strength in the midst of your vulnerability? God's got it. And he's got it for you. You want love, steadfast love, in the midst of the fragility of human relationships? God's got it. And he wants to give it to you. Now that phrase there, steadfast love, is actually one word in the original Hebrew. And it's probably the most important word in the entire Old Testament. It's the Hebrew word hesed. C-H-E-S-E-D is how we spell in English. And it means strong love, faithful love. It means I'm going to marry you kind of love. I'm going to marry you and I'm going to stick with you through thick and thin. And I'm never going to leave you kind of love. And that is the most important word in the whole Old Testament. It appears over 200 times. And if you don't get that word, you will not understand the Old Testament. Because you'll just be thinking, they are so screwed up. My gosh, people are so bad at being people, at being followers of God. And God is just, God gets angry a lot. It's like, what is going on here? And it's like, yeah, he does get angry a lot. But here's the thing. The Bible never says, and that, that's called his wrath. And that's a real thing in his judgment. But the Old Testament never says that God delights in wrath. He doesn't delight in wrath, although he responds in wrath to human sin and human hardness of heart. But it says over and over again, I, God says, I delight in loving kindness. I delight in steadfast love. I delight in pursuing and wooing and calling people, even unfaithful people, back to me. And here's the story of the Bible. That was not enough for God. That was awesome. That was amazing. But that was not enough. So he says, I'm going to come in person. I'm going to come in human flesh. I'm going to be born among them. I'm going to become a tiny little baby. I'm going to become an unborn child. I'm going to become a zygote. I'm going to become an unborn child. I'm going to become a baby. I'm going to become a teenager. I'm going to become a man. I'm going to become vulnerable. Christianity is the only religion that proclaims the vulnerability of the living God. That God became vulnerable. Not just to become one of them, but be invulnerable. I'm going to become vulnerable. And he eats with sinners. And he becomes a doctor for sinners. And then that's not enough. But then he says, I am going to take upon me my body, my vulnerable body, the sins of the world, and I'm going to die for their sins. And he bears it. And then he comes to us Sunday after Sunday and he says, this is my body. Take and eat. And what's he saying? I've become vulnerable for you. I am willing to enter into your vulnerability and to become one of you. I just find that staggering to think about that. 
I think the psalmist is, like, as he's telling us this story, I think behind this story, he's, he's sort of subtly asking us, well, you're looking for salvation. We're all looking for salvation. We're seeking it. We all, we're going to build our life on something. There's not one person here who is not, you're not building your life on something. What are you going to build on? You know, um, I used to love Robin Williams. I just thought he was brilliant, and I thought he was hilarious. And, uh, man, he, towards the end of his life, he really struggled. As you, as you may have known, he struggled with addiction, struggled with drug addiction, struggled with depression. Then he took his life in August of 2014. And um, towards the end of his life, he was really struggling. He had went through a pretty... Um, unwanted uh, divorce. It, it really wounded him. He was struggling in his career, struggling to find his bearing. And um, in his, a guy recently wrote a biography of Robin Williams, and he, he quoted a close friend of his who said, and this is the quote, he said, it's like Robin didn't worry about anything when he worked all the time. He operated on working. That was the true love of his life above his children, above everything. If he wasn't working, he was a shell of himself. And when he worked, it was like a light bulb was turned on. Now, I like work. I like working. Work is good. It's an amazing gift of God. I would feel really bad if I was completely out of a job. I was out of a job for eight months one time. That was really hard. But here's a diagnostic question to ask yourself, this is a great diagnostic question. What is the true love of your life? What do you love above everything? What if, fill in this, if I'm not blank, I feel like a shell of myself. And when I blank, it's like all the lights go on in me. If you can answer those questions, you know what your salvation is. You have identified your salvation. I thought, what if Jesus was speaking to Robin Williams in this psalm? Because that's what the early church believed, that Jesus was speaking to his people and to the world through the psalms, through these ancient psalms. It was actually Jesus' voice was heard. So what would he be saying to Robin Williams? And, and I think it might go something like this, just with a heart filled with compassion. I see, I see you trying to make life work. I see you trying to deal with your vulnerability, your fragility, but I have something better and stronger and more secure for you. It's me, the living God. And I love Advent, it's my favorite season. Actually, when I first started going to a liturgical church 10 years ago, when I first started going to Res, I felt like I was stuck year-round in perpetual Advent because just every season had an Advent feel to me, you know. I could never get out of Advent. Well, now I can, I can get out of it, but I love it. And here's an Advent invitation. First, to get clear. What is your salvation? What do you say for blank, alone, or primarily my soul waits in silence? From blank comes my salvation. And we can say God, but the heart doesn't lie. 
Our words can lie, but our heart never lies. Our heart doesn't lie. What are you setting your heart on, this psalm asks. The second thing is, it's not only to get clear, but to hear God's invitation. Because I, I, I love this about the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Because here's the thing. We can admit our vulnerability and just be honest about it, and yet we can receive strength and power from Jesus Christ himself in the midst of our vulnerability. So there's a little passage of Scripture that I used to carry around in my wallet for years until it got so frayed I could know it just kind of like disintegrated because it was in my wallet, and I was, always, I was always pulling it out. And when I was in high school, and especially my early years, early years of college, I struggled a lot with depression. Um, like a really bad depression. It hasn't afflicted me for probably 30 years, but just went through a season of four or five years of really profound depression. And this, these verses, this is what I kept in my wallet that I pulled out almost every day and read. It's from the Apostle Paul talking in 2 Corinthians. And he says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. What's the treasure? Well, he's talking in the context, it's Jesus, the living Christ within me, my union with Jesus Christ, my faith in Jesus Christ. He says, I have that treasure, and where is it? It's in a jar of clay, just an ordinary, breakable, woundable jar of clay. That's, Paul's saying, that's me. I'm that. But you know what I got inside of me? I have this treasure. And he says, so that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And then he goes on to say, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. It's like life is vulnerable, especially when you're out serving the Lord and you're taking risks. It can make you feel really vulnerable. He says, I'm always carrying in my body the death of Jesus. I'm identified with the death of Jesus. I'm identified with his sufferings. Why? So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So I think this morning, how would I live? How would you live? In light of my vulnerability, in light of the fragility of life, that's kind of the bad news. That's a hard truth to face. And yet I f just face it all the time. How would I live knowing that, but then at the same time knowing that I have this treasure within me, the risen Christ. What would, how would we live? What kind of hope would we have in the midst of life's vulnerability? What kind of joy, what kind of risks might we take for God? Some people might be crazy enough to move to Madison and start a new church. Some of you in your ordinary life, you might be willing to take risks that you never thought possible. So get clear on this this morning. And I pray that you, like me, would come to this place for God alone. My soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Life is going to shake me because life always does that. But I have a rock. Are you clear on that? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Yeah.